I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Hello, hello. Thank you for joining me one more time in slow-mo. I am still recording out of Farm Girl in uh, uh, South Kensington in London. And I have to say, it's been quite a pleasure actually to record here. The team's been very, very kind to me. Great coffee. And I I always say we're not sponsored by Farm Girl. It's just uh, that the uh, co-founder, Rose, is a friend of a friend. And I thought if I'm going to be traveling the world to record slow-mo and look for wisdom, I might as well look for coffee, right? I think it just makes sense. Today, I am joined by a uh, wonderful, wonderful, hopefully a longtime friend who approached me on Instagram, basically tagging our slow-mo episode with Alain de Baton, which was very, very early on, I think in the first 50 episodes. And uh, I was actually surprised that people are still binge uh, listening to Slow Mo. So I was wondering uh, who that is. Anyway, I said, thank you. I'm glad that you enjoyed it. She said, uh, you know, thank you from an Egyptian to an Egyptian, a fellow Egyptian. Uh, She turned out to be Egyptian born, raised in uh, the United Kingdom and a best-selling author of a book that is about a topic that I absolutely uh, think needs to be told. And uh, any of you have ever heard me uh, talk about the feminine and empowering women, I have to uh, openly say we've been uh, as a society everywhere in the world, almost throughout history, very unfair to women. And uh, sometimes I feel that uh, my upbringing as a Middle Eastern man will give me an angle of being unfair to women that is worse than the rest of the world. Eventually, as I started to travel the world, I realized that it's just different and that we still continue to be unfair to women almost everywhere. So it's my intention to try and bring that topic up more and more, not as a form of complaining, but as a form of putting the facts on the table so that they can be addressed. And I'll start with my own upbringing as a Middle Eastern with Ali Amuro, who has written a book that's called the greater freedom, life as a Middle Eastern woman outside the stereotypes. And you can imagine the undertones of that subtitle, outside the stereotypes. The Middle East is a very conformative society. It expects you to behave in a very specific way. And when you're a woman, it expects you to behave in a very restrictive way, which I disapprove of very strongly in the way I treated my wonderful, wonderful daughter, growing up, which I believe is what made her as confident, as free as she is today. She needed to have the freedom to define her own identity, whether that's Middle Eastern partially, Western partially, or simply Aya as she is. So I would hope that every one of us, especially listening, uh, who is raising a young lady, a young girl in their home today, to learn that we are not supposed to to tell our kids how they should behave and how they should grow up, but rather give them the greater freedom. 
Uh, Alia, thank you so much for joining me. (laughs) What an intro. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. First of all, no coincidences, right? We met for a reason. Absolutely. And I followed your work since I clicked on your popular Instagram account. I think 30,000 followers or something like that. A bit less, but you know. All right, it's fine. (laughs) A, a, A couple of thousand less or something. But it seems to me that this is a topic that is warranting a lot of attention, that you're not the only one that's saying that living outside the stereotypes is a, is a challenge. And there is, you're not the only one that's saying that the greater freedom is needed for all of us. I want to start with you. So tell us a little bit about you so that our listeners can connect a little bit to who you are. Um, so I was born in Egypt and I lived there till I was about five. I lived in Switzerland for a few years with like for my dad's work, moved to London. And then when I was 12, my mom was like, we're moving back to Egypt, which, Ooh, yeah, ouch. <laughs> ouch, exactly. Especially at 12, actually. Absolutely. I feel mm. like it's such a pivotal year. And I was like, oh my God, are you serious? Anyway, we moved there and I loved it. And I made so many friends and I felt... Um, really grounded in who I was, you know, I think it can be difficult to grow up in a country where not everyone looks like you. Like I remember even today my hair is curly and I'm really trying to like embrace the natural curly hair because it's such a thing to like be straight is more beautiful. And it's something that we no. have. I know, I know. No, I, used to, I, I used to tell Aya growing up, remember Aya? I used to say to Aya, your hair is beautiful. Don't panic. Well, Aya is a typical of all of us. She has a very wonderful curly hair. My mom did not agree. Oh. And neither did like the British culture, you know? Uh-huh. So I remember at school, I, the, I wrote, I write this in the first chapter of my book there was this boy that I liked I was like eight years old it was like very timid liking but I remember the popular girls in my class who were you know blonde and white and all of that they came up to me and they were like well I don't understand why he likes you back basically like he only should like us because <laughs> yeah, that, like that's what how are, what you what are you exactly yeah. you know but you're brown kind of thing so going to Egypt felt really um very homey, you know, everyone looked like me. Everyone, I didn't have to explain why my parents thought the way that they did. I didn't have to explain why we ate the food that we ate. Like that was just how it was. So it felt very, um, yeah, very kind of grounding. And then after like six months, my mom was like, okay, we're moving back to London. Oh, So then we ended up only being there for one year. And at the time I was so, you know, upset, but now I feel very grateful for it because it did give me this sort of grounding. And now I go back to Egypt all the time. Anyway, so I've basically been in London ever since. And then um, I never really thought about, you know, as much as I sort of felt it, I never thought about writing about these things. I started my career as a journalist writing about hip hop mainly. Oh. Yeah, which I just love until now. I feel like there's something in the bravado of the lyrics that just makes me always feel really confident. So that's how I started out my career. And then I think as I got a bit older and I started approaching my Saturn's return, which is, you know, a huge kind of shift in how we think and what we want. I started to really think about like, wait, no one's really, you know, no one's really talking about these things and I need someone to talk about them. Um, So I sort of started basically, and I'm very lucky. My parents are very uh, liberal, which is something annoying that I feel like I have to say, but quote unquote. So I was kind of like, what am I waiting for? You know, like, why am I waiting for someone else to talk about these things that I feel are needed to talk about? Maybe I'll just do it. And that's been the journey ever since. It's been maybe five years now that I've really kind of been increasingly trying to step into my own greater freedom and figure out what that means for me. And then in doing so, kind of trying to talk about all the things that 
we're not meant to be talking about as Arab women or even just as women in general. But I, I, yeah. <laughs> and I really liked what you said in the intro, how you were saying how, you know, it's across the world that women are treated unfairly. And I think that's something that's so difficult to sort of hold these two truths where I'm trying to, again, talk about the things that affect us and the sort of unfair things, but not also buy into the stereotypes that people have about Arab women or about Arab culture mm. and kind of there's an othering where it's like this is a you guys problem you know like the Middle East is so oppressive to women and we're amazing and everything's so fair and fine here mm. which it's not your Arabic I've tested is shwaya shwaya yes <laughs> it's not the best is it I get why <laughs> okay so would you would you consider yourself more British or more Middle Eastern or have you ever found an identity? Yeah, it's a really difficult one. It's something that, especially when I was younger, I found really difficult. Like I used to always say I'm both and neither because by being two things, it kind of makes you not fully either of those things. Mm -hmm. um, I've started to think of it more as a strength now because I'm like, actually, it's really lucky that I'm able to pick and choose. And, you know, I just spent six months in Egypt, which was a very amazing experience actually and was I, it really i loved it and i think part of it was just meeting so many people who are like me you know who've traveled abroad and lived abroad and realizing that actually no one is just one thing or from one place especially now we've got the internet you know this globalization basically has leveled the playing field in so many ways so i don't feel the need as much to say i'm from here or i'm from here like i'm both actually and lucky me Oh, I love that. How is it to be in Egypt? How different is it? One thing that I really enjoyed about it is how your friends are your family. You know, like I was oh, starting. I it's true. That. Yeah. And I think I was starting here and obviously it's been a really weird couple of years with COVID and lockdown and I live alone. So it was very lonely for lack of a better word. And there's very much this like scheduling culture here where it's like, okay, I'm free for an hour in three weeks. Like, shall we have lunch? You know? Weird. It's weird. Isn't it? I remember so well the first time I started to live in Silicon Valley. I have to tell that story. A friend of mine, like a really good friend, we worked together every single day. And he basically emailed me and said, hey, myself and my wife would like to host you for dinner on Wednesday from six to eight. Okay. In Egypt, from six to eight means arrive between six to eight and leave when you want. Leave like in a week. <laughs> yeah, like some, some of us will arrive at six, some of us will arrive at eight, some of us will show up at 10, no problem at all. And you know, some will leave at 10, some will leave at 11, and some will never leave. And there'll right? be enough food and enough drink and exactly, enough beds right? and like everything to host you for as long as you could possibly want. So you love that on the Egyptian side? Yeah, I think there's a really lovely hospitality and like a very nice... Um, just like a generosity of spirit, of time, of friendship, of, you know, all of sense that. Sense of welcome. Yeah. Sense it's like of we welcome. like having you here. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there, there's something really healing about that, actually. Mm. I believe that to be true. I believe that even though we overdo it sometimes, <laughs> right? <laughs> Every Egyptian will know what I'm talking about. It's like, yeah, it's like, we can so, overstay our welcome sometimes. That's and, sure. and, 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 and interestingly, you know, you, you, you get to know 
that's because we're like 110, 120 million people now who's counting, right? Uh, so no basically, <laughs> exactly, nobody's able to. So you end up realizing that you probably have 600 cousins to whom there are 60,000 siblings and that all of them want to meet you and you have three days there. So what are you going to do about it? It's quite overwhelming. It is. It? I think there's like a safety in that as well, though. I remember when, when we lived there, when I was younger, I went to school the first day and I kept meeting all these people. You know, they come up to me and they'd be like, oh, my God, my mom knows your mom, my, yes. my cousin's friends with your grandmother. I don't know, you know, all of this. And there's something that feels really safe about it. Yeah. And I sort of feel that till now, you know, I, and even I can see that when I was younger, my parents were a lot more um, chill when I was like trying to go out in Cairo. They'd be like, yeah, it's fine. Like we know their parents, you know, not understanding that we could definitely yeah. get up. It's like, it's like if someone kidnaps too. you, we probably know their cousin. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, Exactly. You feel you feel safer, I think, as a result. And as and maybe because of that, you're more able to explore yourself and, you know, your sort of boundaries because you know that they're um, you're not just like out in the wilderness, which I think I definitely felt as a teenager in London, like it felt a lot more like anything can happen here. Mm which is good because yeah again i think you need to explore but also is actually more dangerous i i, I definitely believe that i i definitely believe that i think i think the bigger dangers probably is the dangers of having too much freedom with not enough prefrontal cortex if you ask me uh where decision making sometimes becomes you become your best enemy i think in you know in an interesting way even though i don't approve of the overarching culture of Egypt sometimes, it's actually really interesting because it gets you to fit within a safe framework that is almost not a rule anymore, but it's like everyone's like that. So you might as well live that way. Yeah, which I think can for sure be very stifling as well, because you do have less opportunity. Like I'm 33 now. And whenever I go to Egypt, it's like, oh, how come you're not married yet? Or like, oh, I know that one. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't really know that I believe in marriage necessarily, you know? And you say that in Egypt. Absolutely. Oh, man. <laughs> I have a whole chapter about this in the book. Okay. Yeah, I just, I, I think um, it's important to, to push these boundaries because a lot of people don't fit into the framework, but they might not even know that there's another possibility, another way of living. They might not have the, 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 um, you know, I always say like, it's easier to be yourself if you can see yourself. And I think it's really important to see different versions of life, of living, of choices, so that we have more room to make our own decisions for what we want to do, basically. So so let, let's introduce you a tiny bit more. Are you the rebel, the calm one? I'm Are the you... rebel for sure. Oh, hello. Okay. <laughs> Good. So, uh, you know, in a conformative society, how does that fit in? Again, I'm very lucky in that my parents are very liberal, you know, especially my dad, actually, from a really young age, he was kind of like, do whatever you want. And I, there was one occasion, I basically used to lie quite a lot when I was a teenager because they were stricter than I would have liked them to be. So I was lying, lying and getting in trouble. And I remember my dad came to me one day, I must have been like 17, and he sat on the edge of my bed, like I remember it so well. He sat on the edge of my bed and he cried. And he said, listen, I don't know what to do. Like I've sent you to therapy. I've grounded you for like two years. Like what can I do basically? And then he just said, listen, from now on, whatever happens, tell me, I will help you. I will be there with you. I will be there for you and we'll deal with whatever it is. And I will yell at you much later kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> and did he yell at you much later? Uh, 
he didn't need to anymore because I sort of felt like, okay, cool. I have someone that I can speak to. You know, I have someone that will have my back. And I, as a result, I ended up making few, much fewer mistakes. And I think that's, again, why it's so important to have this sort of open dialogue between our families and between ourselves, because a lot of the time, if you don't, that's when you end up being really rebellious. That's when you end up kind of actually getting into trouble. Mm. Because Just like, because you're trying to, to, to test your boundaries yeah. and expand them. Basically. And also, like you said, you don't have, you know, especially when you're young, you don't have good decision-making faculties. Yeah. So if you have an older person that you can speak to, I you think, and you can trust, then I think it's, it's really important. And I hate this idea of like, I shame, you know, I had a podcast called talk of shame and it was all about sort of trying to break down a lot of the stuff that we're made to feel ashamed about, because I think, you know, it, you end up getting into much worse situations when you feel ashamed about it and shame breeds shame. And then everyone's kind of in making these weird decisions in private and in secret. And actually it, it breeds a lot of bad, dangerous things if you can't speak openly. I mean, I'm going to say something here. And if my daughter tells me to edit it out, I'll edit it out later. But I remember when my kids were 13, maybe 14 and 15, I think. Ali was 15 and I was 14. And we were sitting on a dinner table and I said, okay, I'd like to retire parenthood. And, uh, and I remember so vividly, Aya was like, yes. <laughs> and, then, and then Ali was uh, like, uh, would you elaborate exactly <laughs> what that entails? <laughs> and, uh, and, and the whole idea was exactly what you said, that I realized, first of all, they were wonderful kids. I mean, of course, they were trying to test their freedom, right? But they had the essence in them. You know, I felt that they actually didn't need me as a parent anymore. They may have wanted to test a few ideas of me, but, and I was lazy. I just didn't want to continue that fight, if you want. And, you know, and I think that probably if, if you ask me was, probably the most impactful decision I have ever made in my life. Because from then onwards, it was no longer a fight. Like you, it was, okay, we can trust this guy. We can tell him that we did this and that. I think one of my favorite moments in my entire life with those kids was we were going out for dinner a few years later. Ali must have been 19, Aya must have been 18. And Nibel, my ex at the time, used to smoke shisha. And so she ordered the shisha, like a, what do you call water it? Water pipe. Yeah, water pipe, right? And, and, I, and then I looked at the kids and I said, do you want to smoke too? Yeah. Okay. I mean, they were not kids. I was a fully grown woman. Ali was a tall, handsome man. And they smiled at me and said, yeah, we've been smoking for a while. <laughs> I was like, yes, yes. Yeah. They are free to tell me. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it yeah. really is. It really is. And I feel really lucky now because my parents are like my best friends. Like I tell them everything now. And it's really nice to be able to have that relationship. And, you know, there's this poem by Khalil Gibran, which is your children are not your children. And I, such a good poem. And I just think there's so much truth in that. And I think especially in the Middle East, to be honest, we do have this idea of like, you are, you're an extension of me. And like, my honor is like carried on in your behavior kind of thing. And I think that's such a heavy burden to carry. And it, it just means that, you know, I think we need more people in the world who are themselves. Yeah. And 
if you have to always hold that of what's my great grandfather, like, oh my God, you know, then it just means that you can't be yourself. Yeah. And then how much amazing like work and progress are we losing out on then? So let's just underline parenting advice, stop parenting at a point in time, okay? Just let them be who they are. I Trust them, Trust you know? Them. Let, let them make mistakes because by the way, when you were their age, you made mistakes too. And by the way, when you were their age, you attempted to escape from your father's and mother's control as well. And by the way, mistakes are how you figure out where your own boundaries are. And those are that's a really important thing to know. Yeah. But the idea of you being so close and friendly with your parents, is that more of a Western or an Eastern part of you? I think that is also kind of a problematic thing to like attribute behaviors and ways of being with being Eastern or Western. And there was this really interesting study that I came across when I was writing the book, which found that with girls who grew up abroad, who had sex before marriage or who smoked, they felt less Arab or as a result. And it's just, it's, it's such a weird, I find that so strange, like no behavior is actually Eastern or Western, not to mention the fact that we were all colonized, most of what these countries, and actually the, like the British came and like imposed a lot of their ideas and then left, you know what I mean? So how do we, how do we say like, this is that, and this is that? I don't think we can. And I find it kind of a reductive practice. I think there is an element of of rejecting the identity before you take your actions, if you know what I mean. So if you would allow yourself to live in a certain way that's more associated with the Western culture, you're by definition saying I'm more Western in my mindset than I am in an Eastern in my mindset. So let's just go in, in this a little, a little deeper. So what is living outside the stereotypes? You know, it's a, like I said, it's a re, it was a very tricky practice of writing this book and all the work that I'm doing because you're, you're, you're holding two different stereotypes, right? Correct. You're holding like the West's idea of who you are and what that means. And again, the oppression of Arab women, you know, like, which is heavy and, and very fully fledged and most of what we see really in Western media or in movies or anything. And then you're holding the kind of, Eastern stereotype of what you're supposed to be as a woman, which is, you know, nice to look at and like well-behaved and married and a mother. And so I was kind of trying to caring, absolutely caring and nurturing above all of it to everyone more than to yourself. So I think I'm outside of both of those stereotypes, but then navigating the line between those and trying to explain it, I suppose, is um, is very hard, actually, without falling too far on either side or proving either side or proving the Western side right. I guess the Western gaze is, is probably more the one that I find, um, especially because I'm writing in English and I speak in English and I live here. And I actually found it when I came back. So I was in Egypt, like I said, and I loved it and I felt much safer there than I often feel here. And I remember I came back to London and this guy like slid into my DMs basically to be like, oh, I can't imagine what it must have felt like to be in a country which so, um, which so oppo like opposes female expression, right? Mm -hmm. And on one level, of course, he's not entirely wrong, but it was the assumption that here they don't that really bothered me because they absolutely do. And like, we're seeing, you know, we're recording like what, two days after the Supreme Court just rolled back re reproductive rights in the US, which is mind boggling. 
or but also not if you've been paying attention. So it's kind of like, yeah, the assumption that this is like a West Eastern problem is so absolutely incorrect and so frustrating um, that I think when I when I try and have these conversations and speak about these things, what I always find really interesting is the amount of women from across the world and all different cultures and all different religions that identify with it. Yeah, and I think that's what we need probably to see more of is to sort of break down these kind of imaginary differences and realize that at the root of it, they hate women. <laughs> like it's such a it's a strong way to say it. I think. <laughs> I don't know if to disagree. I, I would phrase it properly and say, we do not respect women as we should. I do, I do. But the society at large, whether I, I've been everywhere, I've been everywhere. I've been from the Copacabana beach in Rio de Janeiro to Saudi Arabia, right? Which by the way is actually refreshingly reforming, okay? And when you, between the extremes, there is always a way of, us trying to make a woman less than a man. Society at large, believe it or not, including women. Yeah, okay? absolutely. And, and I think that is, I don't know where we're living really. I don't understand where humanity, I think it's because humanity does not allow itself to actually think about things that seem to be common, right? We don't sit and reflect and say, hey, by the way, that's actually, that sucks. Like, right, we, we, should, we should reconsider this. But I love what you're saying. It's not just Middle East. And sometimes it's highly exaggerated in the Middle East, right? But on the other side here, yeah, I haven't felt that women are fully expressed either. As a matter of fact, I sometimes feel that nobody is fully expressed at all. Welcome to the United Kingdom, right? I'm sorry if I know many of my listeners are in the UK, but in the UK, we don't express ourselves fully. Yeah, I think, you know, the patriarchy is is alive and well all around the world, basically. And I think that there is a big, um, it's so insidious a lot of the time that we don't even realize. And to be honest, I spent most of, like I say, you know, there's a chapter in my book called When You're Not a Feminist, because for most of my life, I would not have called myself one. And I would not have wanted to be called one because- What is a feminist? A feminist is someone who believes in equal rights, that a woman and a man are, you know, can can be the same kind of thing. You and don't believe in equal rights? I know I do, that's what I'm saying. That's what a feminist is. So the assumption is like a feminist is this like man-hating, like bra-burning, hairy woman, basically, which is, I think, what throughout history we've kind of been told it is. And because of that, and because of, you know, how strong it is, and we want to be liked by men, and we want to, which is part, the whole part of it. So we distanced ourselves from it a lot of the time, mm -hmm. which I did for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. um, Almost until I started writing this book, to be honest, because I think the more I started to really think about these things and unpick them, the more I started to realize where I actually stood and the less I started to care about, even though I still do, and I'm really working on that with therapy, thank you very much. <laughs> but the less I started to care what other people thought, essentially. And I started to realize that actually my intuition knows um, and it's like about tapping into that basically, instead of always looking outside of ourselves for approval, for information, which we, you know, we're very much encouraged to do. I think we're not encouraged to look at our, what we know and what we think. Mm. So let's once again go. I want to first establish the picture, like I introduced you to our audience. I want to establish the picture of the typical Middle Eastern woman. Let's introduce her to our audience. 
I'm a bit reluctant to do that because I feel <laughs> like there uh, there is no typical Middle Eastern woman and that's no, part I mean the of stereotype. The stereotype is what that you're like completely veiled and covered and you're like in your house like walking behind your husband like 10 feet behind there might be four of you uh you've got like <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing keep going you've got kids like running around everywhere you don't work you're barefoot and pregnant basically <laughs> okay yes my you can hear perhaps the unenthusiasm in my voice because it's so it's yeah it's a, it's a strong stereotype yeah and i think you know throughout media basically that's the one that's been fed to us yeah but the more i've been doing this work the more and like i love social media for this because i'm like wow there's so many of us and we all look different and we all have our own reasons for being the way that we are and we all have our own interests and you know same as anyone same as any culture like generalizations are very um one dimensional like there's yeah. no such thing as a typical anyone yeah and again that's part of what i'm trying to do and with my newsletter, The Greater Conversation, it's all about sort of building this community so that everyone can see themselves re reflected and represented in different ways yeah. so that they can feel more empowered to be those versions of themselves and to really step into that. Have you ever been to a place where someone asked you and said, oh, you're from Egypt. Uh, do you guys have the internet there? All the time. <laughs> I, used to have, I used to have a pen pal when I was young. Oh, I love that. I did too. Yeah. It was so cute. It's such yeah. a cute practice. And I remember that I was living in London at the time and they were in America, I believe. And I said like, oh, I'm from Egypt. And they were like, oh, do you live in a pyramid? <laughs> do you go to school on a camel? And I'm like, you know, there are not very many pyramids. Like, I don't see that we could all fit inside them to live there. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and also camels are very uncomfortable. Have you ever, I mean, normally I answer and I say, yes, I, I would go like, yeah, you know, I take my, I start my camel in the morning, let it warm up a little. And then, you know, I take it wherever I need to. It takes me four weeks to get there you know i wish i could make more jokes about it like i feel like part of also what i'm trying to get past is like i feel this burden of responsibility often in terms of like being like no you know <laughs> let me let me explain let yeah. me explain no no i don't feel that at all it's tiring to be honest <laughs> I, I joke with it all the time it's uh it's quite interesting i have to admit i mean especially recently after i went to the sort of the the more open saudi i've not been to saudi for what seven eight years maybe 2015 was the last time i went and uh, it shocks you how incredibly educated the women of Saudi are. And now that they have, I think they have the highest entrepreneurship per female capita in the world. They are incredibly successful, highly educated. In an interesting way, it is almost the opposite of the stereotype. But, but I'll be honest, the stereotype also exists. There is also that woman that is covering her face and, you know, walking behind her husband. And I don't know. I mean, in an interesting way, I believe there is that woman everywhere in the world, even in Brazil. Absolutely. And, and, yeah. I think the idea that we should fight against is the idea of stereotyping in general. Exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking, because I think... Yeah, there's no such thing. Like stereotypes exist for a reason, but it doesn't mean that they're the only thing. Mm -hmm. And that's the danger, you know, both for yourself, basically, that you feel like, oh, there's only this one way to be. And then also, again, for the outside world, you know, who are who are looking at you and the, just putting you in a box, basically, and requiring you to stay in it. And I think, you know, sorry, not to get too deep or anything, but that's what allows like the invasion of Afghanistan or the invasion of these countries where they're like, oh, let's go save the oppressed women 
and that's that was so <laughs> yes. much used yeah. as yeah. as one of the justifications. Yes. So I think there's a real danger in othering, basically, because it just means that you you don't look at your own problems and your own like ways that actually you're not that different mm. and you're just like this is a that this is a them problem which is counterproductive because we're not going to be able to really make change or be free basically to be ourselves if we're all or really think about things if we're always looking elsewhere and blaming other people and other countries and other cultures so there are a few chapters in this book that i have to say you've been very brave to write okay i mean I've, every chapter is actually quite uh, it's very, very well written. And if you if you know the background, you sort of like smile at the irony. <laughs> but uh, there are uh, chapters that start with the title. Chapter six, when you're not supposed to like sex. Chapter seven is when you're uh, supposed to be with an Arab. Yeah. And chapter eight is uh, when you're supposed to get married ASAP, right? And... Uh, I'd like to, if you're open to, I mean, sure. you wrote about them, so you're very open. What are those stereotypes? You know, more than the stereotype, I think that's where shame really comes in, especially when it comes to sex. And I think as women, again, around the world, but it plays out a lot in, in the Middle East where we're not even really educated about our bodies. Mm -hmm. And there's this amazing woman called Noor Imam, who I've been following for a while. I had her on my podcast. She runs this platform called This Is Mother Being. And she was telling me about how her, I think, three-year-old daughter, or maybe she's a bit older, and she was asking her, like, oh, what, you know, what's my vagina? Kind of like, what is it? Like, what is this? What does it do? And she showed her a mirror, and she was like, this is this part. This is where the pee comes out. Like, you know, and obviously only to the amount that a six-year-old or whatever would understand. She didn't, like, go all out or anything. But I think it's so empowering to understand your own body. And then that, again, stems to like being able to make better decisions with what you want to do with that body and not sort of being, um, not being misled, you know, like I, I write in the book about how I lost my virginity was very traumatic. And I don't know that I would have done it if I had been able to have these conversations in my house, with my friends, with myself, you know, when everything is wrong, how do you know what's right? So I think that's one of the main, you know, one of the main things where shame is, does such a number on us, honestly. Yeah. So I speak again, very honestly about these things, even though they're very difficult for me to do. And people would be like, oh my God, what are you talking? Like, how are you doing this? But it's just because I don't want anyone ever again to ever feel like they can't talk about these things because I know how dangerous it can be when you don't have that space. I mean, the idea of not even talking about it is part of the shaming, isn't it? Absolutely. Can I ask a very open question? You being a British woman, have you been shamed for liking sex? I don't think that women anywhere are really supposed to, we're not meant to really be doing it for ourselves. It's always about, you know, especially in heterosexual situations, it's always about what the man wants, what the man, you know, and like the statistics of how often women have an orgasm versus how often men have an orgasm. The orgasm gap is wild in and of itself. So I just think it's, yeah, we're, we're not, we're not, it's not supposed to be for us. It's always supposed to be like a present that, that you're giving someone else kind of thing. 
And I just think that it's very uh, disempowering, actually. The inequality that's so inherent in it is really wild. Even the assumption that, like, if you sleep with someone quickly, they'll they'll just not consider you as, like, wifey material or girlfriend material, whereas they're also the ones who are, like, there's two people here. So there's a lot of that that I think needs to be debunked in order for us to really be able to express ourselves in all the ways that we want to. I mean, this is one. So I'm writing about the topic, as you may know. So my uh, my next book in uh, March is Unstressable, and hopefully the following November is uh, Finding Love. And uh, and in Finding Love, I, I speak very openly. I wrote the book twice so far, and then I'm rewriting it again, interestingly, because as I wrote it for the second time, so I wrote it the first time, and it was very heterosexual. And I realized that wasn't actually... I started the book by saying... I don't know anything about homosexuality, so I'm not going to give myself the right to write about it, okay? But then I, as I always do, I show it to early readers, and they started to say, we feel exactly the same. And then I, I wrote it again, and then I finally realized that everything literally equally applies if you're a woman, man, straight, gay, whatever you are, whichever way you, you identify, we all like sex, or we all don't. Like some of us are asexual and that's fine, right? We all want to be free. I mean, the podcast that you posted about on Instagram was Alain de Botton's. And, you know, Alain de Botton basically was talking about love and sexuality and so on. And the idea is that we are all longing for that moment where we feel that we can allow ourselves to be with someone fully as we are and be accepted exactly as we are, which is almost the opposite of shaming. Right. I mean, it's not almost it's exactly the opposite of shaming. Mm -hmm. And so this whole idea of even when you allow yourself to be there, we're going to get up for you. Right. It's just so unfair. It is just so wrong. And in an interesting way to reward a man for doing it and say, hey, well done. And to shame a woman for doing it is like, oh, come on, don't be a slut. Right. That's so unfair. That's so wrong. And what would you say which should be the right approach? I mean, I'm not talking to men, by the way. I'm talking to women. So what, how should a woman rebel against this? Honestly, it's uh, something that I've, this has been my whole mission of the last like six years. And actually my, I'm, I've started writing a new book as well. And it's all about this because I think that love needs to be rebranded. Sex needs to be rebranded. Like all of this needs to really be unpicked because we're approaching it at both like men and women, everyone. Absolutely. We're approaching it at such a disadvantage actually, because we also look to it to solve our problems. Mm. And we think that it's like, oh, once I, you know, and we're told that, oh, once you get married, everything's fine, basically. It's almost the, the sort of message that we're given. And I just think that's actually doing, it's putting way too much burden on a relationship anyways. It's putting way too much burden on the other person. Whereas actually I think, you know, and it's not to say, oh, you need to be all healed and whole before you can love someone. That's not true. But I think that it's it's very much about kind of rethinking the messages that we've received about this, even in terms of like, you know, what there's one person for you for the rest of your life. And if you even look at another person ever, then that means that you're being unfaithful. And, you, should, you know, I think this is wrong. It's actually a very incorrect notion. I was reading a great book actually called Sex at Dawn that you might have. I, I read that, yeah. Which blew my mind and really made me think about things very differently. 
So in terms of like what my advice is, honestly, I don't have any because it's it's something that I'm still very much trying to unpick. But I think one thing that I've really been kind of trying to figure out is say I want to have sex with someone. Why do I want to have sex with them? Is it because I'm hoping that they're going to then like me and call me next week, you know, tomorrow? Is it because I'm trying to like cement something, which I think we're also weirdly told it does? Or is it because I want to and I have no expectation here, in which case maybe that's fine if it's just for pleasure and just for a connection, which it is ultimately a connection. So I think what I'm kind of settling on is as long as I'm respecting myself, and what I, you know, who I really am and what I really want, and I'm respecting, of course, the other person, then I can do whatever I want, basically. But if I'm like abandoning myself in order to try and have another outcome to something, whatever that might be, or if I'm being disrespectful or hurtful or, you know, mean or whatever, then I shouldn't. And those are the only reasons why you should or shouldn't not then he's going to think you're a slut or then you're going to be easy. Or I think those are all very toxic ways to actually just police our behavior. And I spent a long time policing my own behavior in fear of that. I, you know, I write in the book, I, I slept. I, so I used to always, I found it relatively, like I was fine when I had a boyfriend, but when I didn't, I'd be like, oh my God, what do I do now? And I remember I like forced myself to have sex with this guy that I liked because I was like, I just need to have sex. And then when I was leaving his house the next day, I said to him, do you think less of me now? And I couldn't mm. believe that I said it. Like it fell out of my mouth. Like it wasn't on purpose. Um, and then I actually went to get to hypnotherapy because I thought there's so much shame that I'm obviously holding here. And there's so much... Um, there's so many incorrect notions of what this means. Like, why am I even placing more importance on what he thinks of me than what I think of myself? And it was fascinating to see, you know, the messages that we receive, even from a very young age, from our parents, from the media, from society at large, that tell us that we should be ashamed and how much that burden then weighs on us and prevents us from being ourselves. Words of wisdom, totally. I mean, I'm, I, I'm writing openly about this. And, and remember also, I come from a religious background. So, you know, in a very interesting way, damn, my daughter is sitting behind that camera over there, <laughs> shaking her head. But I, I have to admit in an interesting way, sex, like everything in life is double-edged, right? If you do it for the right reasons, with the right person, with the right intentions, with the right feelings and emotions and you end up having one of the biggest gifts of life. If you do it for the wrong reasons, you wake up in the morning and you're tortured. Absolutely. Right? And, and you know, if, uh, if you don't mind me saying, Aya, when Ali used to say, Ali, my, my son used to, to tell Aya that when two uh, people are together in, in sexual intimacy, a part of your soul goes into her and a part of her soul goes into you. Okay. And the choice of who you let blend with you is something that is entirely about making that act the most amazing act ever or the worst act ever. And, and interestingly, there is a lot of conversation around, even within religion, what that bond really is, you know? Is it really about writing a piece of paper or is that, you know, a legal procedure? Or is it about 
what we call transparency and agreement. It's basically, we are together for this. You could simply go to that young man and say, hey, I think you're very attractive and dumb, but I still want to sleep with you, right? And if that's the agreement, you know, that I'm just going to sleep with you, but don't call me tomorrow, which by the way is, again, what I write about in, in Finding Love is the, is the infinite models of love that are available in our modern world. It's actually quite okay if we agree that we want is a hookup. You don't do that, Aya, okay? <laughs> <laughs> if, if we agree that we, what, what you want is a hookup and both parties agree and there is absolutely no lying, no shaming, no uh, dishonesty, fine. Who am I to judge that if that's not my model? And I, and I think that's, once again, is not just the Middle East. I'm amazed as I travel around the world with how many... I mean, I'm a, a straight heterosexual man. So my experiences in life are with women, but with how many women are so ashamed of enjoying themselves or of letting themselves be who they are. Because as Alain de Botton said on that podcast, when we allow ourselves to be who we are, we're weird. Like, yeah, you know, it's like, so true. sex is not like sipping coffee. It's, you know, it's actually a, an unusual act. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the look. Sure, but I'd like to just say one thing to that. I think 100% agree, I think, as long as everyone's like on board with the same thing, that's amazing. I think what I find quite difficult, especially in the West, and there's really great documentary on Netflix that I watched about this, and there was one of the researchers and she went to um, spring break, basically, and she saw all these boys and they'd be like, oh, you know, they just quickly have sex in like five minutes to some with some random and that would be the end of it. And what they were saying basically is it's almost now become like whoever cares less wins. And I think, you know, the whole point is like, oh yeah, we've had sex and I don't even care about you at all now. And I think that's really stealing something really what's supposed to be a special thing in whatever way that means, even if it's a temporary thing, it should still be with respect sacred and, and sacred. Yeah, I, I agree, but, but, but remember for that generation, also friendship is the same. Right. Also, all kinds of interactions are a little shallower. And, you know, when we were growing up, fitting in required, you know, in my group of friends required a bit of physics and mathematics. Fitting in for you in Egypt required you to know a little bit of Arabic and so on. And I think the, the, the younger generation fitting in for them is requiring, hey, you know, I'm chill. I'm easy. I have freedom to do whatever I want and I don't care about whatever happens next. And, you know, maybe it's a phase. Maybe that's the way the world is shifting. But at the end of the day, I will still say if that's like you, you've so beautifully stated it. If I'm true to myself, I'm not lying to myself about that feeling. If I am respectful and not hurtful of others, then that's okay. I think that's, uh, that's, that sounds fair. I think connection is, is the bottom line really. And yeah. we should, we should seek connection and like really sort of allow them to flourish and really appreciate them for whatever they are yeah. without, uh, belittling that actually absolutely and for a long time i found that really difficult to be honest because i felt i also bought into the idea of like any vulnerability is like a weakness and you need to like be super chill you know so that's something that i've really been trying to unlearn because i think that you lose a lot you lose a lot by by pretending to not care is that what you, why you have a tattoo that's called chill? Yeah, but that was more just like, <laughs> allow your brain to calm down, please. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> so this takes me to the, how we're supposed to look in the Middle East. I mean, so you have tattoos. My wonderful Aya has tattoos, beautiful tattoos. I don't, 
It's a choice, right? But who am I to tell Aya not to have a tattoo? That's her choice. It's her choice, right? But the way we look seems to be something that we take against women clearly in the Middle East, but also everywhere in the world, right? So if you choose to wear a conservative dress in France, that's taken against you. If you choose to have a tattoo or wear a more comfortable revealing dress in the Middle East, it's a little bit taken against mm -hmm. you. Tell me about that experience. Yeah, also you're supposed to have a certain body shape. You're supposed to wear your oh, hair in a certain is that way. True? Absolutely, I think. What's the Middle Eastern body shape? I think everywhere we're supposed to be like pretty skinny. Yeah, okay. Everywhere I believe skinny is seen as more responsible than not. It's like a status symbol and we're supposed to be attractive. We're supposed to be nice to look at. Yeah. And I think again, that's, you know what I wrote? I write a lot about the removal of body hair as well. Like that's such a thing. Like we are not supposed to have body hair as women. Like that's. I never understood this. Once again, I mean, how are you not supposed to have body hair if you have body hair? You know what? I know it well. We all know it well. We have a waxer who comes to the house every month and she removes all your hair. That's basically what you do from like a super young age. Middle East more than elsewhere? Yeah, I'd say so. I'd say so too. I'd say so. Hello, uh, you know, like <laughs> it's like a rite of passage, basically. Like you're like 12 and your mom's like, okay, yalla, like we have someone coming and then you just get ripped why, to shreds. Why do we do that? Supposed to be more feminine, I believe. Isn't it more masculine to grow muscles? Why don't men grow muscles? Like, why are they fat and lumpy? <laughs> like, seriously. I think they're supposed to grow muscles, like supposed to, in quotation marks, supposed to grow muscles. And we see that a lot now. I think there's a lot of um, pressure that's increasingly being placed on men to also kind of adhere to these. Seriously? I'm, I'm, out, I'm <laughs> out of fine. the game now. <laughs> <laughs> You're okay. But I think social media contributes a, in both in two sides to this, because I think on one side, there's a lot of comparison in like a, you know, negative way where we look at what other people look like. And we sort of feel like, you know, everyone's editing themselves and you think you're supposed to look like that. But then I think on the flip side, it's really great because everyone is their own publisher now. So everyone can, you know, there's a lot of people who are posting things that are outside of the stereotypes and then they sort of have a community that follows them and says like, okay, fine. So I can look like that too. So it can be very empowering, but then yeah, it depends who you're following, which I think is a big thing about social media. Like you are what you eat basically. Like, <laughs> yeah, you are what you swipe on. Yeah. I'm with you on that. Do you think there is an actual common look for an Arab woman? Um, I think we definitely see like, you know, and I think Lebanon is one of the plastic surgery capitals of the world. <laughs> True. <laughs> so we definitely see the kind of, you know, ski jump nose, blow dried, like big bouncy hair, designer labels, you know, it depends what kind of Middle Eastern women we're talking about. There's, I guess there's several stereotypical ways of looking. But there isn't one, one look for the Middle East, right? I mean, you're blonde, if you're Syrian, you're very well human made if you're Lebanese, you're like the boss if you're Egyptian. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and it, and it changes, you know, Morocco has this very Frenchy feminine side to the women of Morocco. Mm -hmm. The Gulf women have that very stylish, classy, expensive look to them. And, and it changes from place to place. And yet we think that there is a, a certain way that we're supposed to look, which I think is the underlying theme of all of it. Look extremely attractive as if you're not attractive at all. Like, you know, like make it look like you're incredibly beautiful, 
but you're really very conservative and covered. And absolutely don't be doing this for attention from men until it's time for you to get married, in which case... We will encourage please. you to yeah, yeah. We'll encourage you to get attention. Absolutely. But it's that's why I think it's so important to have, again, like different representations. And I'm, you know, I've been really sort of enjoying, again, seeing all these women who are creating work, you know, TV shows like Rami was so amazing to watch because it was like, wow, you know, for the first time I see something that kind of looks like anything that I know. There's this amazing book that just came out by Salman Werdeni, who's an amazing Egyptian British uh, author. It's called These Impossible Things, um, which is about three Muslim Arab women who live in the UK and their lives and what that looks like. You know, there's increasingly sort of work basically that I think speaks to all of these different ways of looking and being that, again, we desperately need. Can I ask you the most difficult question of all? Do you think the Middle Eastern woman is more connected to her feminine or less connected to her feminine? Oh, that's a very good question. Again, it's very hard to generalize, right? So it's, it's impossible to say, uh, you know, that all women are the same way. But do you believe that they're encouraged to be feminine? I would say in like the superficial ways, there would be more connected in terms of like, or in the stereotypical ways of what feminine even means, right? But like, you're supposed to be caring and nurturing. You're supposed to want to be a mother. You're supposed to, again, look this attractive feminine way, basically, and lean into the femininity in that ways. But I think what I'm realizing, what femininity, you know, and I'd love to hear what you think about this, but I think what femininity increasingly means to me is... Like it's the divine feminine, you know, like it's, it's a deep rooted intuition and like a deep rooted power. Like we are the creators of the world. You know what I mean? Like no one would be here if it wasn't for the, no one, there'd be no humans. So I just think that actually that's what the feminine means to me. And in that sense, absolutely not. Are we encouraged or are we that? And you want me to say something after that? <laughs> Can't say anything. What do you that. think is, is I wrote the, I wrote that openly. I wrote that openly in that in that little voice in your head. So I have a chapter that compares the feminine and the masculine. And my my message, and I have a full book on the topic, hopefully book number seven, that's called Her, which basically is entirely saying, unless we start to empower the feminine, we're all toast. We're gone. Absolutely. Right? We're, we're killing the planet. We're killing each other. And it's just unacceptable. And the truth is, people will say, oh, but it's been like that since humanity started. No, we're accelerating everything at a rate where it absolutely needs reversals. And the one thing that would save the world, whether it's global warming, whether it's AI taking over, whether whatever it is, it is really to empower the feminine, to allow us to nourish to allow us to have intuition and inclusion and connect to the rest of the world. And I basically debug the whole idea of, hey, but the masculine is useful because it protected us against the tigers and it's now, you know, moving things around. And I was wondering if the masculine would ever have even grown beyond being a little one day old child if we didn't have the feminine, if we didn't have the life force that is nurturing, huh? if we didn't have the ability for the feminine to see and feel and sense what's safe and sense what's not, we're useless. As a matter of fact, I believe that the power of the masculine, one of my favorite books of all time is The Master and His Emissary, which basically says, yes, we need both, but we need the feminine first. 
We need everything to start from the feminine to define what it is that should be done. And then the masculine can go do it, right? Mm -hmm. But the idea of us depriving ourselves from that view, I, I mean, I ask you the questions when I sort of know the answer. It's not very different in the Middle East. It's exaggerated sometimes in the Middle East on some topics. But, you know, even if you take the very, very simple look of the Middle East and how you're supposed to look in Egypt versus how you're supposed to look in Brazil, you're still supposed to look, which is like, what is that? Like, why am I supposed to look like anything, right? And I think that whole idea of us liberating I tend to believe that there is nothing, no, none, none of us is 100% feminine, none of us is 100% masculine. We're all very unique mixes and we can, can we liberate and liberate and say, be whatever the f you are. And I think men, like you said, need to tap into their femininity Absolutely. more. And I think what's so difficult a lot of the time is like our examples of power or any of these things are masculine. So even us as women and me for a very long time, I'm only just beginning to scratch the surface of trying to unpick my own femininity because for a long time, I thought it was weak. You it's know? not at all. No. So I, I write openly in her, again, a little far away to publish, but I want to say it now. I dare any of our listeners find a single human being that had a positive impact on humanity that was more masculine than feminine. Every human being that ever made a difference to our world was more feminine than masculine. Gandhi was more feminine than masculine. Nonviolent resistance doesn't sound like manly to me, right? Steve Jobs, as I always say, Steve Jobs was obnoxious and pushy and aggressive, which are all masculine traits pushed beyond balance, right? But what made him Steve Jobs was his love for, you know, appreciation of beauty, empathy for the user needs, understanding of creativity and beauty and color and playfulness in a way of the tools and the way they look and so on. It's all feminine qualities. What made him successful was his feminine and what made him a little difficult to deal with was his masculine. And that applies everywhere, right? Again, I'm not undermining the masculine at all. I've lived through my entire life building things. Even my happiness mission is based on a very masculine, measurable approach to spreading the message, right? But the truth is we need more of the other side. We're dying. But I think this goes back to what we were saying at the very beginning of this conversation, which is that women around the world and the feminine, therefore, are is not respected. Absolutely. I think they're not respected because we've designed a playing field where masculine traits appear to superficially deliver quicker. Okay, so if your playing field is let me win against my competitor, then you want to show a masculine trait. But if the playing field is let's all of us win, let's all of us grow and prosper, then yeah, it requires a little bit of a different perception, a bit more patience, but definitely the feminine would do it better. Yeah, we desperately need it. I think that's the big takeaway for me. And I think for a lot of people, especially now after the tail end of you know, lockdown and all of this stuff, we need to lean into our femininity, to gentleness, to empathy, to, because it's it's not working. Can we go to marriage? Yeah. <laughs> Again, by the way, I'm asking not as a Middle Eastern woman. So I, I hosted here one of my dearest friends, Emma Gannon, who wrote- oh, She's uh, great, yeah, she's I love amazing, Emma. amazing, Emma. And when I, when I hosted her, we spoke about her book, at the time was her latest book, which, which was called Olive. Yes. And Olive was really all about a main character that wanted to be childless. She, you know, so she didn't want to be a mother. Child-free. Child-free, child-free, okay. Uh, 
they say there's a difference between what's the di- what's the difference? Childless is you know a lot of people, a lot of women you, you might not be able choice. to have yeah. children. Child yeah. free is it's a choice, and I, you yeah. don't want one. Yeah. So what's your what's your position? Um, I'm definitely leaning towards child wanting to be child free. Uh, I don't know what will change my mind. I think I'll just be the cool auntie. I'm down for that. <laughs> okay, that's an interesting choice. <laughs> like, I'm yeah. down to be the cool aunt. It's like, you know, an arm's length. You know, like I can see them when I want to, but not all the time. I went to the park with my friend last week and her two kids, and we had a really nice time. And then they started to throw a fit. And I was like, okay, bye. <laughs> and she was laughing so much. She was like, I think you've I think you've nailed it. Yeah. I just think, you know, and there's a great book actually, Sheila Hetty, called Motherhood, which was really sort of very poignant for me at the time especially when I read it and she's a writer in the like the character is a writer and she was saying like do we need is not writing and creating a a form of creation anyways and a form of like leaving a legacy I feel like you know the basically I think I would only have a child if I was with a really really amazing man who was gonna do exactly the same amount as I was and maybe there he could ma- even carry it. No, I don't know that there are. I think half half is a big order to ask, you know? And I haven't really seen it. I've not seen an example of that. Can I say why? Why? Because you women spoiled us. Yeah, it's possible, yeah. But also like men should take the initiative. Like we can't always be the ones like, please. It's an economic problem. Yes. It's an economic problem, sadly. If, if you know, if one woman in the entire market Excuse my economic words, but if one product in the economic market is $1 cheaper than every other product, every other product will become cheaper. It's as simple as that. And the reality is that we men have been spoiled. We've been spoiled even more with women's freedom, right? Because the reality is that there is a lot more supply on the market with very little effort. Sadly, sadly, it is actually tilting in the wrong direction. And I think the only way for us to get men to, I mean, it wasn't very long ago, one of my favorite movies of all time is called Kate and Leopold, if you've ever watched it. You know, this- Hugh Jackman? Yeah, Hugh Jackman. And very cute actress that did, you've got male, Meg Ryan, yeah? And and, uh, yeah, that's how much I remember actors' names. I I leave my memory space for other things, right? Anyway, uh, and, and he's supposed to come from the past and he behaves like a duke. Like, you know, he opens the door for her and treats her this way and carries her to bed and does all of those beautiful things. And I'm like, oh my God, that's really how it's supposed to be. Now you go out on a date and you go like, nah, I don't want to be, you know, I'm, I'm going to pay for myself. What do, people, do men do? Go like, yeah, sure, pay for yourself. Like, yes, absolutely, why not, right? And if we if we flip that story a little bit and say, step up, step up to come into our life, I think men will go like, oh, the supply is running out. We need everyone to do that then though. Not really. By the way, absolutely. The mothers, like, honestly, I get into this fight with my mom all the time. She's like, Habibi, Omar, like my brother. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, leave him. Like, he's 30, yeah. you know? Yeah, he's 30. He's a grown ass <laughs> man. Okay, I want to go back to your view on marriage then. Okay. You're a Middle Eastern woman. I can't believe what you're about to say. Yeah, I just think it doesn't feel worth it. Oh, wow. Until maybe someone will change my mind, by the way, but they would have- Can you hear this, men out there? So men listening, this is a security announcement. (laughs) 
Okay. <laughs> All <laughs> the good ones are going. <laughs> we're, we're losing our reputation here. Someone show up, text her on Instagram. What, what's your... <laughs> yeah, I don't know. They'd have to really be really fantastic because I just feel like the emotional labor that often falls to women, the childcare, the cleaning, the, you know, all of these things. And actually one of the things that they were saying failed the, the second wave of feminism, one of the things that they really flopped on basically was that they were like, we want to be in the public sphere. We want to be in the public sphere, but they did not also insist that men need to be in the private sphere. So it goes to what you're saying. Yes, you guys definitely got spoiled because- Do you think I lost half of my male uh, <laughs> audience Today. I hope not. I hope that these are conversations that we're really I able to absorb agree. and really think about because these are serious things. A lot of people feel like this, you know, and I don't think it needs to be, there's no hate here. There's no pointing of the fingers. I think it's actually thinking about how do we move forward in a way that actually serves everyone because also it's a big burden on men by the way to be Absolutely. the providers and to be the breadwinners and stuff like i'm sure Lo you don't want to have to do that either Absolutely. yeah love that fairness i think i think there is an there is a definition of an extreme model and everything in between and once again like you said before it's a matter of agreement like can we agree exactly where that is but also i hear you saying the same wise words if it's not worth it it's not worth it there is nothing wrong with marriage but there is something wrong with a marriage that's not going to be. Exactly. And there's this, um, what's this, like a saying that I write in the book, which is uh, better, uh, something about a shadow on the wall, basically. Do you know this one? Uh, yeah. Yes, yeah. How what do you say that in English? I said it in Arabic. You should say it in no, English. <laughs> the shadow of a man is better than the shadow of a wall. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So I think that's where we go really wrong, basically. And that's what we're very much. And that's why I'm saying we need to rebrand love. We need to rebrand all of these things because it's not any man or or like you're screwed. It should be something amazing and special and empowering for both parties where you're really able to be the best versions of yourselves because otherwise, what the hell are we doing? Words of wisdom. Alia, I wanna close with your definition of happiness. If you were to, having been exposed to all that you've been through, I mean, you, in, in an interesting way, living in two cultures is such an eye opener. I, I definitely know that because I lived that way myself, right? Out of it all, if you were to give one tip on happiness, what would that be? I might be paraphrasing something here, but what comes to mind is when what you do and what you want are in harmony. Ooh, I love that. When what you do and what you want are in harmony. Or when you do what you want or when you what you want is what you do. All of the above. Okay. I'll take that. <laughs> I am so, so grateful for your openness. I, uh, I think what I, uh, what I find quite encouraging is, again, because of my filter growing up into the world to see an Arab woman be able to express herself openly and say, this is what I believe, this is what I agree with, this is what I appreciate, this is what I don't appreciate, this is how I want to live. I think is inspiring, not just for Middle Eastern women. I think this is inspiring for every woman. I think every woman needs to sit with her emotions, with her beliefs, with her conditioning and say, I want this and I don't want that. And I don't care sometimes where that came from, but I just don't want it in my life. I think that freedom, if you ask me, is the greater freedom. Yeah.
Thank you so much for being Thank here. You. And for all of you uh, listening, if I've upset any one of you, <laughs> please forgive me. I do have quite strong opinions on the topic. I really think our world needs to allow everyone, just like we finally grasped gender diversity, let's allow everyone to be who they are fully. Let's allow everyone to live and explore and find the life that is fit for them. You've wanted that yourself, so you might as well want it for your friends and your family and your kids and everyone else. And I hope that when you reflect about every part of the way you look, the way you see marriage, the way you accept or engage in sexual intimacy, it's all about the good side of it and the bad side of it. If it is what you want, then it is what you want and it is right. And if it isn't what you want, then please sit back and reflect and ask yourself if this is how I want to live. I have really enjoyed this. I once again, thank you very much, Alia, for coming along. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it too. If you did do the stuff that you have to do, you know, like the liking and stars and all of that stuff that I hate to talk about, but you do know that it makes a difference. So rate us five stars, uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel, uh, do whatever it is that you guys do on social media. And while you do this, remember that every one of those conversations that I try to bring to you is a conversation that we don't always allow ourselves the time to consider and think about. And it, it doesn't really matter how busy you are today. There's always a tiny bit of time for you to slow down. I love you all for listening and I'll see you next time.